0: But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be
0: to God. Let's pray church. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we have another Sunday evening like this, another opportunity that as a church, we get to gather to sing your praises, to be in your word, Lord. So we pray that tonight as we, as we get close to finishing up Luke, as we look at this singular story, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would be working among us, Lord, and that just as you on this road revealed your word and your truth to these followers, so might your spirit be revealing truth in your word to us tonight, Lord. Be with us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Keiki, you are dismissed. Uh, if, If there are any that are still here, your teacher should be waiting in the back for you. You can go back to your class. In last week's text, we looked at the reality of the resurrection. It's pretty awesome this evening. Uh, We just sang a song about the risen Lord, and then we sang about Christmas. Um, We get both sides of it. It's a special thing, especially this time of year. And there's no contradiction there. Both of those go hand in hand. They're both to be celebrated, to be rejoiced in. One does not happen without the other. Last week, we looked at this story of the resurrection, the reality of it. How the women who had been followers of Jesus went on the third day to honor their Lord. How they were going above and beyond the normal burial practices and effectively risking their lives reputation to show their love and affection to Jesus. These women came to the tomb but found that the stone had been rolled away and the body of Jesus nowhere to be found. Instead, they were met by two angels who proclaimed the good news of Christ's resurrection to them. They ask the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. These angels did not leave it there. They did not just expect them to be taken at their word. Just the fact that angels are there, they don't expect them to believe it, but they instead encourage them to remember what Jesus had said. Remember his words, the words that you heard from his very own mouth. That's why this is true, not because angels appeared, but because Jesus said it would happen. that he was to be arrested, crucified, and on the third day rise, and these women remember. So they return to the disciples, to the followers of Jesus, they go to share the news. And Luke tells us that the 11 remaining disciples and others, the rest of Jesus' followers, they're gathered together. No doubt, they are afraid, they are confused. There's chaos in their hearts and minds. And these women come and share the most bizarre story they could probably expect to hear at this moment. And Luke tells us that the apostles hear these words and they don't weigh them heavily. They don't believe them at face value. Rather than rejoice, they consider these words as an idle tale and they do not believe We see Peter then goes with some others to see for themselves. They too see an empty grave, an empty tomb, and they go away marveling. But again, there is no profession of belief. After hearing the message, after seeing the empty tomb themselves, there is still doubt. One of the things we talked about last week was how throughout this whole time, Regardless of what they see or what they hear, the disciples, the followers are slow to believe. And we see the same thing here tonight. After the events of last week, we read our text tonight. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. And went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Luke tells us that this is the very same day. After the women had come from the tomb to proclaim what they had heard and seen, what they recalled about Jesus' words, after Peter, John, and others run to check the tomb for themselves, there are two followers of Jesus who decide to leave. They decide to go to a different village. Within the text from last week and this week, we can see that these two followers were not of the 11 remaining disciples. There is some debate on that. Some will argue maybe one of them is Peter. I think it's unlikely. But what we do know and what we see here is they are among the rest, those who have followed Jesus up until this point. One is named Cleopas, the other unnamed. And again, they are Jesus' followers and they have been present for all that has happened in the last... Few days this past week. Yet they decide to leave.
1: Luke doesn't give
0: us any insight on this decision, and this might be a bit of a reach on my end, just me kind of reading into the scenario, me imagining what could be going on in their thoughts, in their minds. But I think it's safe to assume that their decision to leave falls in line with what we see in verse 11, what Luke tells us. That after the women who had been met by the angels at the tomb tell, The disciples and the followers, all that they had seen and heard, Luke says this, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The two had heard the news of the resurrection. They had heard from Peter himself that the tomb is empty. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe. So they left. Why stick around? What's the point, right? Why waste any more time? Their leader is gone. The one that they had left all to follow is no longer alive. We'll see later that they, they considered him to be a man of God, a prophet. They had seen him do incredible things. They had heard him teach like no one had before,
1: but he has died. He's not coming back. But one thing we do see with this text, if that's the
0: case, if they have decided that they are done with this, it's time to go, could be, could not be. But one thing we do see in the text is that they are not bitter. They are not angry about this. They are not angry at themselves or whoever else convinced them to follow this Jesus character. But we see by their discussion and their emotions when Jesus asks about it that they're brokenhearted, they're disappointed, they are
1: sad. And rightfully so, they had placed their hopes in Jesus. And here it seems like,
0: to what end? It's over. So they leave and and they're on their way to a town about seven miles away from Jerusalem called Emmaus. And we see that during this walk, they are talking. They're having a conversation. And I think there is something to be learned from the type of conversation they are having. Obviously, the events of the past few days are on their hearts, their minds, the pain, the confusion, the unbelievable things that they had seen and heard. It makes sense that as they walk together, they are attempting to make sense of it all. They're trying to process it. And we see that even as Jesus walks up, this stranger to them, they continue this conversation. They are not hindered by it. They are open, they're transparent with what is going on in their hearts and minds, and they want to talk about it. They want it all out on the table. And we see that Jesus uses this conversation, this topic, what they're going through, to get his foot in the door, to introduce himself into the conversation, to eventually speak in and teach to them. The type of conversation they were having is the means by which Jesus blesses them. I think this is significant. They weren't just talking about something random, talking about what they're gonna do when they get home. They were reflecting on their problems, their
1: issues, what they're currently dealing with at the moment. I think there's a question for us is, what kind of conversations do we have amongst each other?
0: What do we discuss when we are together? How do we discuss these things? When we are going through a turbulent time chaos in our lives, the things that we hope for, dream for when they crumble before us, when we're struggling? Do we bury it in? Do we get angry at it? Do we hide it? Or do we discuss it with those around us? It may be that those conversations we have together are an opportunity for God to speak into our lives. As we see here, Jesus is going to answer them with his word, with the word of God. Often when we discuss these things together to someone we trust ourselves to can be that God has something from his word to teach us as well. And so we see that they're walking, they're talking, and Jesus approaches and begins to walk alongside them. On a number of occasions, we see that Jesus is not recognized when he appears after his resurrection. John notably mentions this multiple times when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and then when he appears again to Peter, John, and the other disciples that had returned fishing. And so we see the same thing is going on here. They don't recognize him. But it's not as though as they fail to recognize him because his appearance is somehow altered. That the resurrected Lord somehow now looks different, his hair is different, facial features, something has changed, he's wearing a disguise, No, Luke says that they were kept from recognizing him, that there is something supernatural here. A veil is before their eyes so they may not see who they are speaking to. I think there's an obvious question here is why? Why would this be the case? Why would Jesus not want to be recognized in this moment? If you want to convince someone of something aren't cold, hard facts, empirical evidence, aren't they the things to use? Aren't they the best way to do it? Right? There's a cliche phrase that's a cliche phrase for a reason. We've all heard it. Seeing is believing. If he wanted to convince them of the resurrection, couldn't he have just shown them? They could have seen and believed. It's hard to argue against a claim when there is physical evidence right before your eyes. So if Jesus wanted them to be convinced of the resurrection, them and anybody else, wouldn't it make sense for him to appear bodily to as many as people as possible as quickly as possible before he goes? Yet he does not want them to recognize him. Again, why? A common theme here in the last chapter of Luke's gospel is a call to remember God's word. To remember what Jesus had said, or to look at what God has already presented in his words for his people in the scripture. The angels tell the women at the tomb to believe, not because they see the angels, not because they see an empty tomb, but because this is what Jesus said would happen. Ground your faith in the words of Christ, not in what you see. Here in our text, we'll see how Jesus does this again as he opens up the whole Old Testament to these two disciples, these followers, and he shows them that God has always planned this. God was promising this from the beginning. And then next week, we'll continue to see this same theme in verse 44. Jesus tells them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Again, he's saying, remember these things that I said, and then he continues that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is the whole Old Testament covered right there. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Over and over again, Jesus, the angels, they are pointing his followers to be reminded of what God has already said in his word. To trust God's word and not
1: simply the things they see or experience. Jesus is not seeking to convince them by signs
0: and wonders. They've seen plenty of these already as is. And we saw that with Judas, no amount of miracles, nothing he witnessed firsthand was enough to save his soul. But Jesus wants true and authentic faith that is grounded in the word of God. This is what we see with Thomas. In John chapter 20, when when Thomas is doubting, the disciples have told him that they had seen the risen Lord, and he says, I won't see it till I believe it. I want to touch him. I want to feel him. I want to see it. And Jesus appears to Thomas, and Thomas responds saying, My Lord, my God. It's a proclamation of faith, belief. He knows who Jesus is at this moment, his Lord and God. But Jesus rebukes him saying, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus wants true and authentic faith that is grounded, not simply in seeing, but is grounded in the word of God and the promises of God. And this has always been the case. God can often use signs and wonders to substantiate a messenger. We see this all over the, the New Testament, all over the prophets
1: but the call is always to believe God and what he says in his word. How often are we seeking physical proof? Praying that God
0: would manifest himself in some way, show himself in a miracle, show himself in something that we
1: can experience so that we could trust him and believe in him. Too often, I think we're always looking for
0: another reason to believe God rather than what he's already given us in his word. That over and over in his word, he encourages, he displays his love and proclaims the gospel and what he's done in our lives. And the call is always the same, to look to the word. So we read that their eyes were kept from recognizing him, And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were all holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I think it's evident here that the events of Jesus' crucifixion were the talk of Jerusalem. Uh, over and over, we see the religious elite were trying to keep it quiet. We're told multiple times that they wanted to do it quietly so no one would notice. They didn't want to do it during the festival, but lo and behold, it was done in a manner that everybody knew about it. Everybody heard about it. Cleopas responds to Jesus and is shocked that he would have been in Jerusalem and not heard. Everyone and their mom knows about this. Jesus, what are you talking about? But Jesus knows what he's doing. Obviously, he knows what had happened. It happened to him. He is not having a lapse of memory, but he is using this opportunity to get them to speak, to open themselves up to him, as he often does throughout the Gospels, so that he could speak into their lives. And what they tell us about Jesus, the things that they say about what happened, about who he is, tells us a lot about themselves, about what they believed, and what was likely the case for most of Jesus' followers that they didn't have the full picture of who Jesus was and why he had come. They did not see Jesus as their spiritual savior. They tell him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, since some, of our women, some women of our company amazed us, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They said, Jesus, how could you not know these things? And then they tell him exactly what had happened. And not just that. But what they thought of Jesus. To them he was a prophet mighty in deed and word before
1: God and man. But he was killed. They had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But
0: he died. They go so far to tell this assumed stranger, someone that they don't recognize. Something that if we had probably heard from someone we wouldn't necessarily be sharing. That, oh, there's people saying they're seeing angels, that he rose from the dead. Maybe they'd keep that to themselves if they don't know this person, trust him. But they are being completely transparent and honest with what they're dealing with, with what they're trying to understand. They are broken over this. There's sadness in their recollection of these events because they think that what they had placed their hope in has failed them. And it goes to show that even to the last minute, few of Jesus' followers understood why he had come. Those who were there all the way to the end, who stayed after, they were still expecting and hoping in a political savior. One who could come with power to redeem them from the oppression of Rome and reestablish Israel as God's kingdom here on earth. And with all this hope, Everything that they're placing on Jesus, their expectations in just a span of a few days is gone. Their hopes are cut down. This prophet, this man of God, mighty in word and deed, he does not redeem Israel in the way they'd expect. And this is something we've seen multiple times in Luke. That proximity to Jesus did not necessarily mean understanding. Many were close to Jesus, yet few knew him for who he actually was and why he had come. Again, this is a reminder for us that just because we attend church, just because we've been around the church or Christianity our whole lives, does not mean that we do not run the
1: risk of failing to see God for who he is or to know him. And so we see that their view and understanding of Jesus is not quite right. And Jesus
0: explains why, shows them why the view is not quite right. He responds saying, "O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I think it's safe to say that Jesus is not complimenting the two here. He is not flattering them. He calls them fools and then addresses their lack of faith. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. I don't think any one of us would particularly enjoy being called foolish, especially from a stranger we meet on the road. Um, I think that would probably put the end of our our conversation with them or, or, or maybe get a little anger in us and try to defend ourselves, right? We tend to do that. But Jesus isn't here to belittle them, to mock them, to put them down, to just rub salt into the wound. But he has something greater for them in mind. He wants them to turn from the despondency and doubt that currently rules their hearts and minds, and he wants them to be encouraged, and he wants them to believe. And he does this, once again, not by showing them a sign or by revealing his identity to them, but by drawing their attention to what has already been promised and revealed in God's word. He says, you are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And the language assumes that they believe parts of it. They knew that God had promised some kind of Messiah, somebody that would come, someone that would come to redeem the nations or to redeem the nation, but their expectations of that Messiah were not grounded in all that the prophets had said. They were not grounded in all of scripture, who he was to be, how he was to come, what he, what he was to accomplish. Their expectations of the coming Messiah were more earthly rather than spiritual. They were slow to believe all that had been spoken, all that
1: had been promised. They did not believe God's word in its entirety. Another thing to reflect on here is how often do we treat God's word this way? That we pick and choose certain
0: aspects, certain truths that sound good to us, things we like, and that's it. We don't take it in its entirety and see all that God would have for us in his word, only bits and pieces. And as we see here in this passage, when we take bits and pieces, we only believe
1: parts of it. It leads to wrong thinking. And in the end, it's a failure to believe any of it. And so we see that Jesus then begins to
0: work through all of the scriptures to show them that this has always been God's plan. None of this is by surprise. None of this is by accident. Luke writes, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When I originally found out that I was going to be uh, preaching this text, I quickly zeroed in on this verse. Um, I figured this is where the bulk of my sermon is going to be. That I could spend the majority of the sermon thinking of, doing what Jesus does here, opening up the Old Testament and seeking to interpret all that the Scriptures say, things concerning Jesus. But while studying, I quickly realized I'm not sure that's a task for a 40-minute sermon or so. Uh, I looked at many resources trying to think of the best way to tackle this. There is book after book after book dedicated to this topic. There are full-on seminary courses that will lead you book by book through the Bible, addressing this, showing us how Jesus is all over the the Old Testament. In fact, about a month ago, we had a seminar here at church Uh, at the end of October on a Saturday. Dr. Chris Bruno came over from Oahu, and we did that very thing. We spent 6 hours here that day in God's word and all we looked at was Ruth. There's so much to glean from this reality about what the Old Testament says about Jesus, how it points to him. The obvious things, the shadows, the pictures, the symbols. And we could do something similar now if time permitted. We could spend so much time just going a run through the Old Testament, where do we see Jesus? What points to him? but I think that would be this sermon and then every sermon for the next year, if not more, right? Maybe in the future, we could do some kind of Sunday school class on this, you know, seminars, things like that. I think it'd be helpful for all of us. But my intention tonight, what I wanna do is highlight two things, less about just certain details that we could look at the Old Testament and show, and more of just see what the way that Jesus teaches here, how he does this, what it tells us. And the first thing is that Jesus gives us a tool. In this text, Jesus gives us a tool to understand the Old Testament. And the second, the way he teaches this, the way he presents this, is he shows us the sufficiency of Scripture, the importance of the Word of God, that it is in itself enough. The first point, again, that Jesus gives us a tool to help us understand the Old Testament. There are the obvious prophetic texts uh, that we can all run to, the ones we know in Genesis about Jesus being the one who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. We know Isaiah describing the suffering servant in 53. But when Jesus interprets to them all the things in scripture concerning himself, I think what's important for us to recognize is that in all the scriptures, there are things concerning Jesus. It is not confined to specific a few specific prophetic passages, but in all the Old Testament, there are things concerning him,
1: every single book. And if we are reading the Old Testament without this lens, then we're reading it wrong.
0: If we aren't seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, then we are reading it wrong. We cannot understand the Old Testament apart from Jesus. On this verse, J.C. Ryle writes the following, let it be a settled principle in our minds in reading the Bible that Christ is the central son of the whole book. So long as we keep him in view, we shall never greatly err in our search for spiritual knowledge. Once losing sight of Christ, we shall find the whole Bible dark and full of difficulty. The key of Bible knowledge is Jesus Christ. Apart from the person and work of Christ, apart from the gospel, the whole Bible is dark and full of difficulty. It is hard to understand. And this is how we are to read our Bibles. This is how we are to read our Old Testament with the key that is Jesus Christ. Allowing him to illuminate it, to give us understanding. This is exactly how the author of Hebrews frames the book. Everything he writes.
1: um, Everything he writes. The things in the Old Testament, that they're
0: things that point to Christ. That Jesus is greater than any prophet, any priest, any leader, any spiritual being. The law, the sacrifices, all the characters, they are shadows and they point to Jesus. If there's anybody that tells you that Christians do not need the Old Testament, point them to the book of Hebrews. I don't know how you could argue that point
1: without that book or with an understanding of what that book teaches because that book is all about the Old Testament.
0: How the Old Testament points us to Jesus, how he's the greater and fulfillment of all those things. Another great resource on this topic is a book called According to Plan by Graham Goldsworthy. It's an excellent book on biblical theology, about how we are to read our Bibles, how we are to understand it, on hermeneutics in terms of interpreting our Bible. And he writes something similar to what J.C. Ryle says in the importance of the gospel and the importance of Jesus Christ in our understanding of both the Testaments. He writes, Although Christ is the fulfillment and the solid reality, he cannot be understood in isolation from the promises and shadows in the Old Testament. I think, pause right here. These followers of Jesus did not fully understand him because they did not understand what the Old Testament said about him. The Old Testament helps us to understand Jesus. But he continues, from our starting point with Christ, we find ourselves moving backward and forward between the, new, the two testaments our understanding of the gospel is enhanced by our understanding of the Old Testament roots. And at the same time, the gospel shows us the true meaning of the Old Testament. This is how we are to read the Bible.
1: This is how we are to read the Old Testament with the gospel in mind. Much more can be said here.
0: We could spend a lot of time here, like I said. There's so much resources about this topic. I think I even came across while doing this, a collection of Spurgeon sermons on this very topic, 700 pages worth on this topic alone. There's like three on Adam and how Adam points to Jesus. There's one about, there's multiple, Melchizedek, Moses, Noah like four about David, and then he breaks down all of the the law, the sacrifices, everything. There's so much here that we could spend time on. And I encourage you to do to do a deep dive, to research it, to look into it. If you haven't read Hebrews in a long time, go back and read it. But also when you read your New Testament, keep an eye out on the amount of times that the writers refer back to the Old Testament to the time that they highlight things that you necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily think were about Jesus, but the New Testament writers bring it up and point it out and say, yeah, this is exactly what it's talking about. And it gives us a good framework on how we are to think about it, how we are to read our Old Testaments. I want to move on to our second point. And this second point, uh, I will keep brief since it's something that's already been mentioned numerous times today. And that is, again, that it is the sufficiency of Scripture. That the Scriptures are enough. That they have in themselves what we need to know about the person and work of Jesus. About who God is and who we are. How we are to be saved and how we are to live. This is what Paul has in mind when he writes to Timothy. He says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Paul says that the sacred writings, the Word of God, all Scripture, it has what we need to know. It has what we need in regards to the knowledge of saving faith, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work.
1: Again, it has all that we need that we may be complete. The Scriptures are enough.
0: we do not need to wait for miracles and signs, pray that God will manifest himself in some miraculous way. But in this text, we see that we do not necessarily need to see to believe. We need to go to God's word because he has given us all that we need in it. He has given us his spirit to help us to understand it and to live it. Jesus could have done so many signs and wonders to display his resurrected self to his followers and to the world, but we see over and over again in this last chapter that Jesus wants his followers to trust God at his word, to believe not by sight but by faith, a faith that is grounded in God's character and integrity as it is revealed in his word, because his word does not fail. It is trustworthy and true. It is dependable. The same is true for us this evening. Our faith is not to be based on spectacle. It is not to hang on the thread of signs and wonders, experience. But it is to be grounded in what God has revealed in his word. And his word is sufficient. If you think about the, the last bit of uh, the chapter here about what we see in John, that Jesus spends some time revealing himself to others, teaching giving them the message to push forward. But then he ascends. And so if the physical proof, the eyewitness of just seeing Jesus was to be enough to convince them of the resurrection, that would only last for a few generations. If we were to depend on signs, wonders, seeing something with our eyes, very quickly that just becomes an idle tale. And a few generations down the line, people do not believe. But over and over again, it is, there's a call. Yes, there's an empty tomb. Yes, there are eyewitness accounts, but all of it is grounded in the truth and reality of what God has already
1: given in his word. And that is what we believe in. So our text ends, we have seven more verses. Don't worry, we are not gonna
0: spend as much time on these seven verses. There's not a ton to expound here. Uh, There's a couple notes I want to make before we finish up. But reading in verse 28, that this conversation has taken their whole trip, the whole time they've been walking. And it says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our heart, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They are at the end of their journey. They are near to this village, and it looks like the day has been spent. It's getting close to evening. Jesus acts as though he's going to keep walking but he has blessed them in his conversation and they want him to be blessed by them. They say, no, come, rest with us. Don't keep going. Rest for the night. The day is over. So he went in to stay with them. And as they sit down at the table, he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it and he gives it to them. And suddenly they see him for who he is. In the end, Jesus does sprinkle a little bit of that spectacle, wants them to see it.
1: But then he goes, and we see that even though the
0: day is over, even though they've spent all day walking these seven miles of probably not well-paved roads, dirty, tired,
1: it's evening. Luke says that very hour they return. They go straight back.
0: And why? He says, when they saw him for who he was, they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road while He opened to us the scriptures? Again, an emphasis on the importance of the Word of God being presented to them it is not simply that they see Him for who He is, but it's what He taught them and what He showed them in His word. As I was considering this passage, as I was praying about it, often my prayer was, "May God help us preach like this." for myself, for Leo, for Raymond, for whoever is in this pulpit, regardless of who the man is, may the preaching be in a manner that presents the word of God, the scriptures in such a way that the hearers' hearts burn in love and affection for their God, they would respond in worship. Likewise, prayer for myself and for all of us whenever we're sitting in church, whenever we're reading our Bibles, whenever we are thinking about the word of God, would he do this kind of work in each of us? That the revelation of his word to us would stir up in our hearts this type of emotion. And we see that this leads to belief. This leads to faith. They go back to Jerusalem. They find the 11 and those who are with them gathered together and they said, the Lord has risen indeed. This is no longer an idle tale. This is no longer something they doubt and don't believe, but they respond in faith that our Lord has risen. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Just like the women, they come, they proclaim the resurrection and then they share the things that they had heard and seen. Another thing that we can work at with ourselves in terms of how we respond when God reveals his truth to us, when God opens his word to us, that we likewise would go
1: and proclaim it, that we would share it in our families, to our neighbors, to those around us.
0: They went and told what had happened on the road. No doubt, They were sharing the incredible things that they had heard from Jesus. The truths about the Old Testament that he had opened to them. Unfortunately, we see even after this, they are slow to believe. In John, we see it up until the last second when Jesus is getting ready to ascend and he gives them the great commission. Even then, John says, and some still struggle to believe. Peter sees Jesus in person a few times, and he still decides to go fishing. It took a lot. They were slow to believe. But again, God's call, Jesus' call to them was to reflect on the truth of God's word, the reality of it, and what it meant. Church, may we be a church that is dependent and loves God's word this way. This is why we preach it verse by verse, book by book because his word is enough. It gives us all that we need. It is by which we know him, by which we know ourselves. So church again, may our hearts burn for the word of God. May we love it, proclaim it, cherish it. May we have our full, doubtless faith in what it shares to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you again for your word.
1: Lord, that we were not left with a simple tale,
0: we are not left with a myth. We are not left to trust just eyewitness accounts, Lord. Even, those, even though those things support the message, even though that they point to the, the, the dependability and the truth of the message, Lord, we thank you that you have preserved your word for us. That we, 2,000 years later, are not looking for signs and wonders. But we have your word preserved. We have it in our hands We have it more accessible than any other people ever. Lord, help us to cherish it. Help us to love it, to seek it, to to spend our days in your word seeking to know you more, that we would know you rightfully and truthfully, Lord. We pray that we as a church would be a people that is marked by a love and a passion for your word and what it teaches us what it tells us about ourselves, what it tells us about you. In all of this, Lord, we thank you that that Jesus was not just a prophet. He was not just a good teacher, but he was the one who came to redeem not a political nation, but all those dead in sin who would put their faith and trust in him. That this is why you came. And Lord, if we do not see that in your word, then we don't understand any of it. And so, Lord, we pray that as we consider the gospel, as we see who we are, as we see what you've done for us, Lord, that that would stir in us an affection, that we would worship rightfully, that we'd read your word rightfully, and we'd proclaim it rightfully, Lord.
1: We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.